The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 74. This is Employment Law Now. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Among all of the COVID-19-related issues that we keep talking about and we keep analyzing, certainly on this podcast, but yet perhaps one of the most um, confusing is workers' compensation. We've talked a lot about leave laws, and we've talked about Title VII. We've talked even a little bit about unemployment insurance. But what is the workers' compensation scheme that we keep hearing about? What about all these lawsuits that are being filed against employers by employees or their estates seemingly trying to get around workers' compensation systems? What is the impact on COVID-19 and this whole pandemic on workers' compensation systems that have been in existence for a hundred years. Well, I've got a guest joining us tonight uh, who is going to hopefully shed some light on all of these questions and more. Robert Snashel has 40 years of experience involving workers' compensation insurance matters. He's actually the prior chairman uh, of the New York State Workers' Compensation Board. During his tenure, the board implemented the 1996 Reform Act, staffed a fraud inspector office in New York, overall reorganized the agency, and modernized the workers' compensation system. Robert has received a number of awards from various organizations, including the New York State Business Council, the New York State AFL-CIO, the International Association of Industrial Accident Boards, the New York State Bar Association and Trial Lawyers Association. He has also served on various boards, including the Government Law Center of Albany Law School and the American Society of Workers' Compensation Professionals. He's certainly not coming on to give any kind of legal advice, but to offer his thoughts and comments based on his experience, and a lot of experience at that, to some of my questions relating to workers' compensation and this COVID-19 pandemic. Bob, thanks so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Mike. Uh, so uh, with all of the COVID-19 issues out there that we've all been talking about, reading about, tweeting about, including uh, what we've been discussing on this podcast, workers' compensation uh, is one of those issues that I think so many people uh, either know nothing about or they're confused about. So uh, I appreciate you taking some time, given your vast experience here, to come on and uh, answer some questions and hopefully provide a little bit of clarity for our listeners. Uh, before we do that, why don't you tell me a little bit about your experience on the government side with workers' compensation? Oh, sure. Uh, well, first of all, I I wandered into workers' compensation in 1979 and never really escaped, Mike. <laughs> uh, I spent my entire career there. And in 1995, Governor Pataki uh, nominated me to 
become the chairperson of the New York State Workers' Compensation Board. And I was confirmed by the Senate uh, twice and served uh, over eight years as the chairman of the Workers' Comp Board. And it was really an amazing opportunity, uh, first to, uh, you know, help design, enact, and implement the 1996 Reform Act uh, to, you know, basically reorganize a agency with 1,600 people, uh, introduce technology, which won national awards, um, and then, you know, quite unexpected, unexpectedly uh, responding to September 11th and the, the challenges associated with September 11th. So, you know, it, it was a very unique experience for me. Uh, but at the same time, too, it gave me a very deep appreciation for the purpose and the mission of the Workers' Compensation Board. And it, and it also allows me to appreciate the current initiatives that the Workers' Compensation Board is taking in response to COVID-19. I think that the chair, Chair Rodriguez, has done a, a great job of issuing letters and you know, advising the parties to, to treat this with compassion. I would note that uh, uh, Executive Director Woods and General Counsel Wertheim were both present with the board uh, in different capacities at the time of September 11th. So they have that memory of September 11th. And, and I think, again, they're doing a, a great job of responding as well. So the government experience, I would recommend to anybody that if they have the opportunity to serve in government, uh, to take that opportunity. If they can uh, uh, find a way to do it, it, it's a very rewarding experience. At least for me, it was very rewarding. Yes. Hey, look, we should all be uh, so lucky to be able to do something and do something for so long that we enjoy and have a passion about. So um, I think that's terrific. You know, one of the things I was I was just thinking about as you were giving that answer, um, we've spoken with so many people in government, both on this podcast and also separately, just in the course of, of my labor and employment practice. Um, and the issue of uh, the political nature of various boards and agencies, uh, government entities always comes up. You know, we hear about it with the NLRB. We hear about it with the EEOC and certainly agencies on the state and local levels as well. Has the Workers' Compensation Board um, had that problem of perception where people have perceived it to be either a political body or, you know, an unduly political body that shifts depending on the administration uh, in the executive office or, or something that is pro-employee or pro-employer? Has there, there been a perception issue with the Workers' Comp Board? Well, that's a great question, Mike. I, I you know, in my own personal experience, uh, my understanding was that, uh, you know, Governor Pataki wanted somebody with experience to come into the Workers' Compensation Board uh, to meet some of the challenges that had been around, you know, gosh, uh, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, I think that uh, certainly there are portions of any system which have, which, which have political inclinations one way or the other. I think that if, if you were to ask a number of worker advocates right now, uh, does the system work for, or work for the worker? Does it meet the expectations of the worker? I think some worker advocates would say, no, it doesn't. And I think that if you were to ask business advocates, uh, you know, does the system meet the needs of business? I think some business advocates would say, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so perhaps it's a, 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 
you know, misunderstood or, or not a fully understood system. Uh, it has tremendous challenges uh, uh, in terms of the numbers of cases that come before it every year, the diversity of cases that come before it every, every year. So, you know, there are obviously some political uh, inclinations in any uh, uh, system, but I think that for the most part, uh, the Workers' Compensation Board attempts to achieve justice on each and every case in a fair manner and in a prompt manner. Now, it's, it's certainly worth noting that uh, the workers' compensation system is largely a state-based system so that, you know, different states are likely going to have some different aspects to their own workers' compensation systems. And, and your experience has been uh, with the New York workers' compensation system. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. In fact, uh, there was an article uh, just uh, today in uh, a, a publication called Work Comp Central where in Iowa – uh, the politics became a little bit contentious uh, years ago with a governor removing a chairperson or attempting to remove a chairperson and the chairperson bringing lawsuit against the governor. And, and uh, I think that happened back in, you know, at least 10 years ago, or give or take a little bit. So in some jurisdictions, it could be quite contentious. Uh, I think that what I experienced here in New York was, was not as contentious as, as it has, was in other states. So um, I'm really, you know, interested in getting your take on some issues relating specifically to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic that we're in and uh, as as workers' compensation has been impacted on that. But I, I want to just touch on as sort of a last threshold kind of question, recognizing again that different states are going to have some different aspects to their workers' comp systems. From a high-level standpoint, for those listeners who are not all that familiar with workers' comp and how it works. Fundamentally, what does workers' compensation uh, cover and what is it meant to do? Well, it's often referred to as the grand bargain. And the grand bargain was a, a, an agreement between labor and management that when a worker became injured at work, rather than have to resort to the traditional tort system and, and go to court and hire an attorney, and, and to bring a lawsuit, uh, uh, the worker could rely upon a system for wage replacement and medical coverage for that work-related injury. And in return, the employer was you know, told that there would be some guaranteed cost. Uh, the employer could not uh, raise as a defense comparative negligence or contributory negligence. And notably, in the state of New York, uh, when the statute was enacted, it required a constitutional amendment uh, so that the New York State Constitution was amended to allow for the creation of a workers' compensation system. Uh, and so that's the grand bargain. And, and each side gave up something, and each side gained something. And that was 100 years ago, Mike. <laughs> and that's still uh, applicable today. It's still in place today. Obviously, there's been a number of amendments and modifications and changes over the years. But yes, it's still in effect today in all 50 states, too. And I'll put you on the spot a little bit. Um, but what would you say, if there is one, is the biggest misconception that people have about workers' compensation? Well, I think I think what I said just a few minutes ago, uh, that, you know, workers feel that the system perhaps favors business and business feels that it favors workers. 
so that the misconception is is perhaps twofold. It, it, it comes at from both the business side and the worker side. And, and, you know, in some cases, you know, you could see why, why a business would have that concern. And, you, and in, in other cases, you would see why a worker has that concern. Uh, uh, certainly in, in simple cases uh, where the, the disability is, is very brief, where the medical is, is very limited, uh, um, the system works, you know, generally quite smoothly. Uh, uh, but sometimes there's more complex cases, and that's where you generally run into the into the you know misconceptions or, or perhaps disappointments in the system. So let's um, bring this a little closer to home now, uh, to 2020 and this COVID 19 pandemic that we have. Um, is COVID 19 and and I guess any illness or injury suffered as a result of COVID 19 likely to be covered as a workers' comp claim? Well, that's a that's a again a great question, Mike. Uh, for someone who doesn't really dabble in workers' comp, that you're coming up with some great questions. So, well, you know, uh, I, I do you. my homework for this podcast, Bob. Come on. Okay. So, if you go through the workers' compensation law, uh, you know, <laughs> section by section, sentence by sentence, you will not find any reference to COVID nineteen. Uh, if you go down the list of occupational diseases, you'll see things like mercury poisoning, lead poisoning, dermatitis, asbestosis, but you won't find anything for contagious diseases like COVID-19. So if you dig deeper, though, and you look at what the board has done over the years and what the courts have done over the years, um, you do see a similarity between other contagious diseases and COVID-19. Uh, for example, there are a number of cases where tuberculosis has been held compensable. Polio has ha- been held compensable. Uh, uh, even mumps has been held compensable uh, under the workers' compensation law. So there is precedent to have COVID-19 illnesses and, and consequences of illnesses uh, to be held compensable under the New York State workers' comp law. And um, presumably there are other state workers' comp schemes that have, if not identical, similar uh, kinds of language when you're talking about coverage under the particular schemes for something like a COVID-19 virus. Exactly. In fact, uh, if you follow this on a national level, and and I would point out that on WorkComp Central, a reporter by the name of Will Rabb, has done an excellent job of tracking how the various states are responding to COVID-19. And a number of states are enacting what's known as presumptions because unlike a traditional injury where somebody slips and falls at work, uh, where that might be witnessed uh, by another coworker or supervisor, how do you witness an exposure? How do you prove the exposure took place? So a number of states have actually enacted presumptions, which essentially say uh, uh, if this worker is in this type of occupation during this period of time, there will be a presumption, uh, whether it's conclusive or rebuttable, most of them are rebuttable, uh, that will say uh, that exposure is presumed to have taken place. Interesting. And, and so when those, you know, standards or presumptions are established, uh, is the board doing so based on 
medical um, support, legal support, combination? Uh, uh, well, what's interesting is that when you look at, you know, it's going to vary from state to state. Uh, 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 in, in New York State recently, the Workers' Compensation Board issued a June 1, 2020 guidance letter. I call and just to and just to date stamp this, uh, we're talking now. It's June seventeenth, two thousand twenty. So you're talking just a couple of weeks ago. Exactly, exactly. And and essentially, it provides a template for what a worker should do in terms of documenting uh, where they were, uh, what sort of exposure they think they had, and then the critical part is to secure a report, an opinion from a doctor. Uh, you know, confirming that yes, this is this this is reasonable, uh, and and I believe that uh, um, this COVID is related to that exposure. So it's it's really documenting that there was a basis for exposure, and again, uh, looking at the case precedent in tuberculosis cases. And there's a number of, of cases that I can provide you with a, a short memo, Mike, you know, giving you that precedent in case anybody wants to dig really deep into this. But it, it generally concerns nurses, healthcare workers, and the like in terms of showing that they were in a hospital wing where there were patients with that condition. And that was sufficient to show uh, that uh, – uh, it was a work-related exposure. There's a very interesting case uh, that, a uh, couple of interesting cases, actually. Um, there was one case that involved um, a telephone operator who apparently was sharing a headset with another telephone operator. Uh, that other telephone operator had TB, and by sharing the headset, this other, this, this, uh, telephone operator contracted TB from using that common headset. Uh, and as a result, that was held compensable under the workers' comp law. Uh, there's a case involving uh, a corrections officer who contracted TB from an inmate. And, and that went all the way to the Court of Appeals. Uh, it was the Middleton case. And uh, that was found to be compensable as well. So, you know, it's not just the healthcare area, and, and often we've talked about essential workers. Sure. What about the the the, the uh, clerks at the grocery store? Uh, what about the bus drivers? Uh, uh, what about the uh, people that operate in the subways? So it's not just healthcare workers, and there is precedent to have the cases established beyond the healthcare area. Yeah, and certainly as businesses are starting to return their employees back to work in all industries, um, this is going to become uh, an issue that's really under the spotlight when we're talking about uh, presumptions and proof and, uh, you know, cause of injury and uh, how are we going to hold uh, somebody accountable or obligated to provide compensation. Right. And, and let me just add a little footnote here, Mike. Um, although there is precedent, for these cases to be established, it doesn't mean that each and every case will be established. Uh, a number of cases will be contested. A number of cases will be disallowed. But there is precedent. And if, if you look at the letter that the chairperson sent out asking the insurance companies 
to consider paying these cases. If you look at the guidance letter from June 1 of 2020, again, it gives you an idea that the board is basically saying, here's what we're going to require in these, in these cases. So, so again, uh, not every case will be established. Uh, uh, some will be denied. And so I want to talk about uh, process in a moment. Um, and, and for anybody out there listening uh, who would find it interesting to take a look at any of the materials that uh, Bob is referencing, please reach out to me, uh, mschmidt at cozen.com as always, uh, and I'm happy to uh, forward you materials. Um, before I get into a question about process, uh, just in terms of threshold coverage, you know, we've talked about this as being the, the grand bargain which essentially trades the ability to file a lawsuit um, for some sort of essentially a guaranteed quicker compensation award to employees. Is this system just though limited to employees or do the benefits of the workers' comp system also extend to independent contractors and other groups who might not be considered true employees like perhaps volunteers or interns? Well, really, I think... Two-part question there, Mike. Um, first of all, uh, everyone should realize that unlike other insurance policies, which may specifically exclude items such as pandemics, uh, I think you've probably read stories about business interruption insurance excluding pandemics as not being covered under business interruption. The workers' compensation policy covers any and all conditions that are work-related. And when you say so workers' no compensation policy, um, I, I want to be clear. So is this something that is required of employers? Is this just like a regular open market for insurance that if you want to get the policy like, you know, EPLI or some other form of insurance, you can get it? Well, actually, you're, in New York State, you're required to have it. If you fail to, to have it, there are various civil penalties and even criminal penalties for not having coverage in the state of New York. So I would direct everybody to the Workers' Comp Board website, which talks about the coverage requirements. And, coverage and that may be true in any other states as well. I mean, it, whatever state you're operating in, uh, you should certainly, if you haven't already, if someone in your company hasn't already, determine whether you are required and what those requirements are. Exactly, exactly. Because the penalties, not, not you know, the, we're talking civil penalties and we're talking about criminal penalties. You should have coverage, period. In terms of the, the extent of the coverage, uh, it covers your employees. Uh, it does not cover uh, uh, independent contractors. Uh, it does not cover um, sole proprietors. It does not cover volunteers. So that uh, you know, one of the things that you have to be careful of if, if you have a business and, and you are subcontracting work out under uh, section, I believe, 56 of the New York State Workers' Compensation Law, uh, if you hire a subcontractor and that subcontractor does not have coverage, what happens is you become liable, your carrier, your insurance carrier becomes liable to to provide the benefits for that employee of the uninsured subcontractor. And then there's other nuances like general special employment as well. Now, I am particularly interested in the volunteers uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic. And why do I say that? Well, as we all know, after September 11th, uh, um, 
And I spent a great deal of time down at ground zero in the days and weeks after September 11th. And I was amazed and surprised at the number of people that had come to ground zero from outside the state of New York had volunteered to, to come there for the rescue, uh, the recovery missions. So after September 11th, we saw two different actions take place legislative. We saw at the federal level, the September 11th Victims uh, Compensation Fund being, being enacted. And then at the state level, we saw Article 8A of the New York State Workers' Comp Law be enacted. And essentially what that did, it said, it said that if you were a participant at Ground Zero, you would be deemed to be an employee of what's known as the Uninsured Employers Fund of the state of New York so that you could secure appropriate coverage for certain enumerated conditions. And that's set out in the statute itself. So I think that at some particular point in time, relative to COVID-19, uh, there has to be legislation either at the federal level or the state level to extend benefits to volunteers. And I say that because there was an article in the New York Times that mentioned that in April of this year, 90,000 people volunteered to come to New York City and help with the, the care of patients. Uh, and the article indicated 25,000 of those people were from outside the state of New York. So why a federal program? Well, what happens if someone from Ohio comes to New York, volunteers for three weeks, is exposed to COVID in New York State, but then goes back to Ohio, and that's when the symptoms develop? Which jurisdiction is going to exercise control over that case? Maybe a federal program is necessary because of the, the transient nature of, of this and where the exposure took place. So, so I think there will be some issues that will come up in that regard, Mike. Do the state schemes speak to that sort of jurisdictional issue? You know, that they've engaged in the activity that they think resulted in COVID-19 exposure in New York, but they go back, they reside in a different state. Um, you know, let's say an employee is, you know, performing certain work in New York, resides in New Jersey, um, uh, or pick, you know, pick your two states. And as you said, the symptoms develop while the individual is home in New Jersey. Do the state schemes speak to that issue as to who would be covering? Well, generally, yeah. Generally, what will happen is the state with the most significant contacts uh, or interests will exercise the jurisdiction there. Um, but again, here, you know, we're talking about where did the exposure take place, too. Uh, and, and sometimes in certain cases, non-COVID-19 cases, you can see a situation where two states will actually exercise concurrent jurisdiction. Uh, uh, over a particular claim. Uh, uh, let us say uh, that the, uh, the uh, worker, is, you know, lives in Pennsylvania, but works in New York City, contracts a condition. Uh, the family lives in Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania may say, you know, we have an overriding interest in making sure that any doctor's bills in Pennsylvania are paid, uh, that the widow is taken care of in Pennsylvania. Etc. You might see a situation where concurrent jurisdiction is there, and then it gets back to the whole issue of where's the coverage too. You know, is there a policy that that 
attaches in Pennsylvania as well. So it's, it's really one of the more complex issues that you'll run into, Mike. So I do want to uh, talk for a moment about process. I've been, I guess, teasing that for a few minutes now because um, there are so many people out there, and I assume some uh, who are listening to this episode, who aren't that familiar with the workers' comp process itself. Um, so, so, Bob, without getting too much in the weeds, can you very briefly walk through what the typical workers' comp process is, how it's triggered, and you know what, what that process generally is, how it plays out? Sure. Uh, let's, let's take the simple approach, you know, a non-COVID-19 workplace injury. Uh, the employee uh, injures himself or herself at work on a piece of machinery. Uh, the, normally, the worker would then tell the supervisor. The supervisor would then fill out an internal accident report. Uh, the employee would would uh, see a doctor. Uh, the employee would give the doctor a history of the injury at work. Uh, the doctor would then do a search to find out who the insurance company is for that particular employer. Uh, uh, and then the doctor would file a report with the insurance company. Uh, the insurance company generally would d- then do a two or three point investigation. Uh, the insurance company would call up the employer and say, gee, we just got a claim for, you know, Jack Jones. What can you tell us about it? The employer would pull out the internal accident report and say, oh, yes, he did have an injury on this machine on this particular date. Uh, the employer would then be obligated to file a form with the workers' compensation board and with the insurance company uh, uh, telling, you know, confirming that this injury took place. The doctor uh, has not only filed a form with the insurance carrier, but also with the workers' compensation board. So what would happen is the workers' compensation board would then assemble a file. And depending upon the seriousness of the injury, would uh, provide it with an index number. And that index number would say that, you know, Jack Jones got injured on on June 17th, uh, involving the left hand when it got hit by a piece of machinery. Uh, The insurance company, in all likelihood, would reach out to the Jack Jones and take a statement from Jack Jones for a couple of reasons. Uh, uh, Number one, to determine, you know, were there any other pre-existing injuries? Uh, uh, Give me the details about this. And there might also be, in that situation, a basis to say, you know, really, this was a defective machine. Maybe there should be a lawsuit or uh, some type of subrogation for that. So, so some cases are accepted. Some cases are contested. But essentially, that's the process. If the case is accepted and there's no dispute, the Workers' Compensation Board will generally issue an administrative determination. Uh, uh, through the mails saying, Jack Jones, your case has been established. You're covered for medical benefits. Here's your lost wages. If the case is contested, if the insurance company says, geez, I just don't believe this because I have other evidence here or there's no medical here, then the Workers' Compensation Board would schedule a hearing or a conference where the parties would come together and they would discuss what are the issues in dispute. So 
again, you've got the simple case where the supervisor was there. Maybe there was another witness there. How does this all translate into the COVID-19 claim? That was going to be my follow-up question. And, and is, know, the process, is the essential part of that process going to be the same? And it's just a matter of it may take longer. You may have more complicated legal issues to, to submit or more witnesses. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. It's going to be a situation where, you know, again, that guidance letter is, is critical, I think, that the Workers' Comp Board posted in terms of saying, okay, Please confirm to us. Please provide us as much detail as possible um, as to why you believe you were exposed to this at work. And the answer might be, well, I worked in this hospital wing for six straight days. We had 18 COVID-19 patients on that wing. Uh, 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 there's, you know, no other exposure that I've had. No other family members had had this condition. Uh, um, and, and by the way, uh, um, you know, they took my temperature and my temperature kept going up. But I mean, what, whatever the details are, but it, it's very fact specific. Yes, very fact specific, absent a presumption. You know, so, you know, that, that's really, you know, one of the things that, you know, will you know, drive, drive this is how good are the facts. Now, some employers are going to take and accept those cases without any question. Other employers are going to contest those cases. Uh, and, and then the board will schedule the hearings before administrative law judges and gather the evidence. And so I want to, um, talk for a second about sort of the flip side of, of, workers' compensation systems and, and coverage and eligibility, we have been seeing a lot of uh, lawsuits already uh, being brought against companies uh, f- with tort-based claims um, resulting in alleged injuries to employees uh, or they're brought by the estates of employees who have uh, unfortunately passed away. Uh, and many people say, well, wait a second, I've always understood that you as an employee or the estate of an employee can't sue uh, an employer for being negligent. Yet I'm reading about all of these lawsuits uh, where that's exactly happening. Um, what, what's been your take uh, on these lawsuits uh, seemingly trying to circumvent the workers' compensation scheme that we've been talking about? Uh, again, great, a great question. Uh, yes, we are seeing those uh, lawsuits around the country. I think we've seen them in Illinois and in Pennsylvania, I believe, so far. I'm not aware of any direct lawsuits yet in the state of New York. In the state of New York, as is the case in many jurisdictions, in order, in order to circumvent the workers' compensation law, uh, it's necessary for the worker or the worker's family in the case of death to show that the employer committed an intentional tort. Uh, Gross negligence is not enough. Negligence is not enough. It has to be an intentional tort. And the courts to date have construed that in a very pro-employer manner. Now, what's interesting here is I think COVID-19 will test the courts. No question. Uh, I think that you're going to see situations where 
lawsuits will be brought, like in Illinois and Pennsylvania and around the country, I believe, so that people are going to say this amounted to more than gross negligence. It amounted to more than a reckless disregard. This was just egregious behavior on the part of the employer. Let's give an example. Let's go back to our friend Jack Jack Jones. He's back at work. Uh, he's been diagnosed with COVID. Uh, he tells you know the um, employer that he's been diagnosed, and and the employer says, "Well, gee, Jack, you're you're such a key person. I need you to come in. I need you to come in." And then the then the employer has Jack come in. Uh, uh, because Jack's been diagnosed, but he doesn't really have symptoms. Uh, uh, but what turns out is he's what's known as one of these super carriers. And the employer doesn't tell anybody else about this. And two or three people become ill. Let's say one person dies. I can see in that situation Uh, someone attempting to test whether or not that's an intentional tort. Yeah, it's a a big problem in this area. I mean, you're talking not only about so much out there when it comes to requirements versus not required, but best practice. And then on top of that, things are changing literally every day uh, in terms of the guidance that we're getting from multiple agencies. You know, it's uh, on the one hand, employees uh, should be entitled to be given a safe and healthy environment in which to work. Um, On the other hand, you know, employers, uh, I think more often than not, are doing the best they can as developments constantly change based on the information that's out there. Right. And you hit on a key point right there, too, Mike. The other thing you're going to see a lot happening is mental stress cases. The anxiety levels are so high. Uh, You know, someone goes back to work and, you know, somebody two two desks away sneezes. Uh, uh, There's insufficient face mask or, or inadequate cleaning or no evidence of deep cleaning. I mean, that's what gave rise. I, well, I think that was one of the reasons that gave rise to some of those uh, class action lawsuits that we've seen in California and Illinois by the fast food workers. Uh, Now, the class action lawsuit was not brought so that the workers could collect monies from the employer. It was to declare the employer to be a public nuisance and, and to essentially tell the employer, you know, you have to do more. So now the mental stress cases, people can file a mental stress case and New York State, you know, recognizes mental stress cases so that even if you don't have a workers' compensation standpoint, you're saying. Right. From a workers' comp standpoint. But this, the class action is almost like a mass mental stress case. It's anxiety by workers over what is not happening or what is not being done at at the uh, employer level. And again, to declare, now, what's interesting about those cases, Mike, if you look at California case, the, cal- the class action cases out in California involving uh, uh, McDonald's, those workers brought that action under a California state statute, uh, which actually allows, if the class action proceeds, 
it allows the class action to collect attorney's fees from the from the business. Yeah. So, so that you well, you know all about leverage. that. So. Yeah, there's there's certainly some leverage for uh, you know, uh, employees and employee groups and classes to to bring a lot of these claims uh, under many different kind of theories. I, I do want to touch on just for a moment, going back for a second, when you're talking about um uh, claims against an employer for failing to provide PPE or safety equipment. Is that a kind of claim that would come under the workers' compensation system? Or is that a kind of claim that you're saying would be uh, one that's looking to get around and outside the workers' comp system? Well, my my initial reaction is just looking at precedent. That's probably a case that stays within the workers' compensation system. It's not dissimilar from not providing safety equipment. Uh, such as goggles or other types of uh, safety equipment in the workplace. However, it is possible, again, by not providing PPE, depending upon how egregious the situation is, someone may claim that that's an intentional tort, that that's more than gross negligence, that's more than reckless disregard. And if enough employees get together, you might be looking at a, a class action lawsuit. The other thing the employer has to be aware of here, or has to be concerned with, and the employee should be aware of it too. You know, there are provisions that prevent retaliation, uh, uh, so that uh, and prevent discrimination, so that uh, um, if someone, you know, uh, wants to file a protective claim saying I was exposed to this person sneezing and, and I think I've got it. And the employer says, you're not allowed to file any claim. You know, that's probably a violation of section 120 or 241 of the New York state workers comp law, which prevents discrimination. And then uh, uh, you're, you're more aware of all the retaliation and, and whistleblower protections that are afforded in the workplace than, than, than I would be aware of. But I think everyone, both employees should be aware of what their rights are under under whistleblower statutes and employers should be aware of what their obligations are under whistleblower statutes. Yeah, and we will certainly see um, I think a lot of this play out, whether, as you said before, and I agree completely, we will see an uptick in, you know, mental stress and emotional uh, injury cases arising out of workplace and workplace conditions, uh, but also whistleblower and claims of retaliation uh, in the workers' comp area as well as, as employees are, as I said, coming back to work. Uh, and in some cases claiming that they have been injured physically or emotionally based on something that happened or arose out of the workplace or uh, something that they were engaging in for work-related reasons. So, uh, you know, if the spotlight wasn't really shining on workers' compensation systems before all of this, uh, I think it uh, is now and I think it will continue through 2020 and probably beyond. Oh, exactly, exactly. And, 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 it's, you're, there's a lot of moving parts right now, too, Mike. Uh, um, you know, more and more states are looking at presumptions, either by executive order or legislation. Um, and, you know, let's take a look at what some employers have done in New York State. Take a look, look at what the New York City MTA did for, I think it's 123 of its workers have died. Uh, as a result of COVID-19, and they they awarded a a five hundred thousand dollar family benefit to each of those workers. Uh, some some employers are are going to 
look at this from a very different perspective than perhaps other other employers. So it is a lot of moving parts. And I mean, there's a lot of talk about a second wave in the fall. Well, yeah. What what happens if, if we're looking at a second wave? So, I mean, I follow this on, on some national publications. Uh, the state the state uh, blog is is uh, empireworkcomp.com. Uh, that carries, uh, you know, a lot of information about workers' compensation in the state of New York. And I follow and I'll keep I'll keep you updated, too, Mike, and I'll send you that information. And, uh, and you know, feel free to reach out to me. You know, as as I you know sit in this beautiful upstate village in, in New York State, <laughs> that's, that's terrific. And this has been fascinating. I think the last question I have is trying to predict the future a little bit. Um, there has also been a lot of press with other agencies. Uh, OSHA comes to mind in particular, where there has been this this outcry. I think for OSHA to develop emergency standards, uh, specific standards and guidance for this COVID-19 pandemic, as opposed to relying on other standards by analogy, or as opposed to relying on the general duty clause. Do you see, and one of the things you started off uh, this episode uh, saying was that, uh, you know, workers' compensation systems don't really address COVID-19 specifically. Uh, Do you see workers' compensation boards, whether it's New York or elsewhere, amending their systems to, in fact, address specifically this pandemic? Well, uh, there was a piece of legislation in Albany uh, a few months ago uh, that would have specifically made it a compensable condition for exposure. And there was a presumption of all sorts of workers that uh, would be covered by that particular legislative piece. Now, right now, the New York State workers' compensation system is an $8 billion a year system. That piece of legislation was analyzed by what is known as the rating board, the New York rating board, which sets the rates for workers' compensation in the state of New York. And I can send you that legislative analysis, Mike. That legislative analysis looked at three types of claims. They looked at claims that involve lost time. They looked at hospital cost, and they looked at death claims. The price tag that they came up with, and I'm not an actuary, so I I can't tell you whether this was, you know, accurate, uh, high, or, or, or whatever. But the price yeah, I that promise, they... I didn't promise there would be math on this episode. Okay, okay, no, okay. No pressure there. The, uh, the price they came up with for that one piece of legislation was $31 billion. Price in terms of what? In terms of how much it would cost the system to enact that piece of legislation. So remember, the, the system right now is $8 billion. So that... Uh, again, now they were working off of numbers in March, uh, and and you know those numbers you know may not have you know borne out as time went on, and and some of the assumptions you know that they made in terms of the number of people that would get it 
again, you know, could be varied as well. But still, that is even if even if they were twice as high as what the real figure was, that would have been an additional fifteen billion dollars on an eight billion dollar system. So again, I think it points to perhaps the need for some federal approach. Uh, um, and, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, you know, go back to the volunteer. So let's say that in any jurisdiction, a nurse who gets COVID-19 and has health consequences is covered under the, under the respective workers' compensation law, but the volunteer working on the same hospital floor is not covered. So does that mean that the volunteer has to bring a tort lawsuit because they're not covered? Uh, um, and, and, you know, so there are some issues and, and policymakers will have to take and wrestle with those issues. And there have been federal proposals. There was a federal proposal by Senator Harris, Gillibrand, Sanders, and others that would have said, you know, benefits should be provided to essential workers. And they defined essential workers, uh, in a fairly broad fashion. And I think Representative uh, Maloney has likewise promoted a, a federal legislation piece. So whether it's at the state level or whether it's at the federal level, this may prompt some legislative actions in the future. Well, it's, uh, it's really interesting and worth keeping an eye on, certainly, uh, as we move through this pandemic and, uh, and beyond. Uh, Bob, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on. This has been not only fascinating, uh, but you have somehow found a way to clarify what is such a dense topic in such a short period of time today. So um, this has really been helpful. And, um, you know, hopefully you can come back on the podcast at another point in time. Okay, great. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. It's been a real pleasure to, to be on this show with you. Well, that was terrific. Uh, I was fascinated listening to that, and I hope all of you gained some useful information for yourselves and to bring back to your organizations. We will keep you updated and keep you posted as developments continue, and oh, they will continue. So keep it right here. As always, I greatly appreciate you listening to my podcast. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.